You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. I'm convinced that every home has a set of rules, either spoken or unspoken, that's kind of the code for that home. So for me growing up, there were a few. One was, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That wasn't just something people said. That was a very true reality in my home growing up. There was another one, do as I say, not as I do. That was passed down from generations of Jamesons, like three grandpas back. Uh, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it, yes. So those were some of the rules. There were some good ones in our household too, but uh, my wife and I have been talking about it over the last several years. Uh, We wanted our home, our, our house rules to be a little more intentional. And so we've actually codified some of these. These are the sayings that we'll repeat a lot. If you don't know, we have five kids, 12 and under, And so some of these rules, you know, the context maybe is helpful, but uh, some of them are pretty obvious. Boys never hit girls, ever. And if dad has to have that conversation with one of the boys, that's a hard conversation for them. Another one, don't play with doors. I don't know why. My kids love playing with doors, swinging on them, slamming them, slamming each other in them. And so there's this rule, don't, you know, just comes, rolls right off the lips. Some of the Rules are the result of having five kids. Uh, one of them's include others. And that's because we don't want factions forming in our house or rivalries. We have, when one of us wins, we all win. Um, because when someone, when one of our kids, you know, does great on a test or performance or something, we want it to feel like a corporate celebration in our family. Like we're all celebrating this thing together. One of my wife's favorites is you do you. She says that on a pretty regular basis to our kids, which means stop worrying about them. Stop worrying about what they're into. Just focus on what's before you. And please don't tattletale unless someone's really, really hurt. And then you can, I mean, if they're a little hurt, you know, uh, (laughs) and some are shaped by our faith. You know, grace means that you can always come home. Grace means that when you screw up, you can come to us. You don't have to run from us. When you find yourself in trouble, come and talk to us. Don't try to hide it from us. And these rules we put in place to promote the peace of our home, but even more, they're there to help shape our kids and, to be honest, sometimes to shape us. Sometimes my wife and I will say these rules to one another, you know, just to remind us this is what we're doing here. And I, I say all of that because in the Greco-Roman world— that Paul is writing to, this Crete culture, there were what were known as household codes, just like that, but they were more formal and much more detailed. And they were written out of the belief, which I agree with, that the foundation of a healthy and flourishing society are healthy and flourishing homes. If you want society to do well, the homes have to do well. And so different people would write these codes. Aristotle wrote probably the most famous one. It's really long, goes into great detail. But the codes back then were always focused on the man, the head of the household, the pater familias, if you've watched, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it was about that man's relationship with his servants, with his wife, and then with his kids. And so I know that there are parts of this text that might sound strange to our modern ears. Anyone, parts of this text, kind of text when it was read, kind of 
make you tense up a little bit or no, no? All right, some of you, yeah, at the nine, they're a lot more honest, I think. Um, <laughs> but what Paul's doing here is he's essentially, he's riffing on these old household coats, but he's infusing the reality of Christ coming and his teaching. And so he's transforming these codes. And this one, he does this in a lot of his letters, but this one in particular, he's speaking not to just households, but to the church. What are the ground rules? How do we want to show up together in relationship? Who do we want to become? What parts do we play? And so what I'm going to do, we're going to walk through this text and spend a little bit more time looking at the challenging sections And then we're going to draw some conclusions. If you'll remember at the end of chapter 1, Paul tells Titus to go and rebuke the false teachers who are leading people astray and leading them into behavior that doesn't honor God or make Christ look beautiful. And so starting in chapter 2, he says, You, however, Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. First up on the list, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. And I did a deep dive into the original language, and I think the age which Paul classifies as old is anyone older than me. Um, And I mean that literally, like it's 40, I'm about to turn 40, it's 40, maybe 50, and above. So if that's you in the room, men, 40 or above, here's Paul's words for you. He's saying, I want you to be temperate and worthy of respect. I want you to be self-controlled. I want you to be sound in faith and in love and in endurance. And if you'll remember, back in chapter 1, the Cretan culture was a pretty rough culture. You know, Cretans are always liars, lazy gluttons, evil brutes. And you get this picture that the men in that society were driven by their impulses and their urges. They were out of control. And Paul's saying in the church, it needs to be different. What we need in the church is we need older men to be wise sages, to help model the way and help the rest of the church navigate a life of faithfulness in a world that's often crazy. And so to do that, you need to be temperate, which means balanced, moderation, you know, all of the, the impulses and urges, you know, that oftentimes rule younger men, they need to be put to, put to death, walk in dignity and faith and love and endurance. And so if you're a man in the church, 40 or above, 50 or above maybe, like that's what we need from you. That's, that's what makes a church and can make a church so beautiful and so powerful is when the older men step into this kind of calling and instead of leading from anger or demanding rights, they can show up with a spirit of helpfulness and wisdom. Paul continues in verse 3 to talk to older women. He says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine. Why do you think Paul said that? (laughs) Probably because there was a problem in the Cretan culture where the older ladies, you know, it's a beautiful island in the Mediterranean. They probably spent their afternoons day drinking mimosas, gossiping about Becky's hair and, you know, Rachel's toga or whatever was going on. And Paul's saying this needs to be different. Older women, he wants to call them to something different. He says, be reverent. Now, That word feels kind of stiff to me. What he's talking about is he's saying, 
you should have a godly character that's evident to all, not just internally, but how you live and how you show up. And then he goes on and he says, don't be slanders or addicted to much wine. And then Paul, or Paul tells Titus to give them a calling, a charge, a task to put their hands to. He says, teach what is good. And then in verse 4, he says, then they, that's the older women, can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And I think it's so interesting that Paul doesn't instruct Titus to teach these things to the younger women. He doesn't say, get up and preach sermons on this or bring the hammer down. He says what needs to happen is encourage the older women to come alongside the younger women and to invest in them and to help them grow into maturity, to help them navigate the challenges of work and home and diapers and dinners and laundry and everything else that can feel so overwhelming. And so let's look at these things that the older women are called to encourage in the younger women. First up is to love their husbands and to love their children. It's pretty straightforward. Ladies, your husbands, your husband and your children are a gift from God even when they don't feel like it. And the call in marriage, and it's the same call for husbands with their wives and kids, but the call is love them. Show up well and love them. And older women can come alongside and say, you know, you get in a fight with your husband and he's driving me nuts. They'll say, you know what? I have that experience too. I've been there. I've been in your shoes. Continues. Be self-controlled and pure. This is probably a call to marital faithfulness is what Paul's getting at, but I'm sure it's also learning to control your anger or your frustration that a house filled with little kids can often, you know, arouse that, hey, encourage them. It's all going to be okay. And then the next one, which is kind of the, the record scratch for a lot of people, teach them to be busy at home. You read that, what? What's Paul saying? Busy at home. And I'll say a lot of damage has been done, particularly over the last 50 to 75 years in the church, because of how this text has been used and abused. Um, I know that there are a lot of churches, and maybe some of you grew up in these churches, that taught that the only appropriate place for a woman in society was in the home. And, or maybe, maybe it's the best place. Maybe you were, they were a little more laid back in your church growing up. And so you're allowed to work outside the home, but the super holy women, they're the ones who stay home with their kids. All my cards on the table, I'm married to a stay at home mom. And so I love her. I think stay at home moms are the best. I think that they have unique challenges. And, and so in no way do I want to denigrate that. But I do want to say that this notion that what Paul's saying here is that this means that, as one commentator put it, <laughs> Paul is not locking women in a kitchen or in the cleaning supplies closet in the home and telling them this is your place and you need to stay here. This phrase, busy at home, it's kind of hard to translate. Some translations will say uh, homemaker. Some translations will say workers in the home. The best translation, and I'm convinced of this from Robert Yarborough's commentary, he says the best translation of this phrase, busy at home, means to be good household managers. It means to run the house well. And so that mean, might mean running the budget. 
That might mean overseeing the servants and giving them tasks. But what he's getting at is young women show up well and lead well and manage well in the household. Now, where this has been twisted is, you know, I grew up, my dad always made us watch Andy Griffith's show and leave it to Beaver. And so I learned a lot about life and family and relationships from Hollywood, uh, which is always healthy. But the, the image that I think a lot of people have of a faithful Christian wife probably comes more from June Cleaver and Leave it to Beaver than it does in the Bible. And if your image of a faithful Christian woman is restricted to only staying at home and managing the home, I don't think that's fair, and I don't think that's even faithful to what we see in the Scriptures. Paul knew that women were vital to the mission of God, whether it's Lydia in Acts 16, Yodia in Syntyche in Philippians 4, or the numerous women named in Romans 16. And so what Paul is saying here to the women is not go home or stay home. He's saying be faithful with what's before you. Be faithful to your children, be faithful to your home, be faithful to the work that's before you. And he's counteracting, you know, uh, a spirit or something in the air, maybe in that day, certainly in our day, that demeans hard work and faithfulness. You know, if, if you're on the socials, like you see it, right? How many little memes about adulting or like adulting's hard or I guess I have to adult today. All of a sudden it became a verb. Uh, or the others, I can't even, I'm done, I'm checked out, rosé all day. All of these things, which kind of say, you know what? It demeans, demeans the work. Demeans the relationships. It demeans what God has put before you. And so Paul's charge here is to say, recognize the responsibility and step into it faithfully. He goes on, he says, to be kind. Older women should encourage younger women to be kind, which is another word that's hard to translate. Some translations would say good. Neither word captures the full weight. It really just means to be a woman of virtue, to be virtuous in your acts. And then lastly, subject to their husbands. And this is one of five New Testament passages that uses this language to describe a wife's relationship with her husband. And we do not have time to do a deep dive on marriage. I still have to address slavery. So I've got a, a lot of like landmines here that I'm trying to navigate. Uh, but I do want to say a few things. One, some say that this was obviously just cultural. It doesn't speak to us today. And I would disagree because in Ephesians 5, Paul roots these roles in marriage, not in culture, but in the gospel. And he really says that marriage is to be a reenactment of the gospel, where the husband loves and sacrificially leads, lays down his life for his wife. And the wife, so he plays the part of Jesus, and the wife plays the part of the church, where she loves, serves, and honors her husband. But these things, both of these, when you read it, even in that section in Ephesians 5, Paul also says that you should, husbands and wives should submit to each other. And so it gets kind of complicated. And I think a lot of times we, we read passages like this saying, okay, who has the power? 
We view this through the lens of power. Does the man have all the power? Does the woman have all the power? Well, if you're called to mutually submit to each other, then, then that whole way of viewing things, I think, is off. I don't think this is about power as much as it's about posture. It's about how we show up in our relationships and in our marriage. And Paul, knowing that, Paul is not saying that wives must be subject to whatever whims or dictates their husbands might have. In 15 years of pastoring here and at a church in Ohio, I've seen this verse referred to and used in such a way that it just perpetuated damage and abuse against women. We're stuck in really horrible marriages with horrible men, but they thought, I just need to submit because that's what the Bible says. Well, first we submit to Christ. And then we live in community, and we press and we challenge each other. But this verse does not mean that a wife just has to submit to whatever whims or dictates their husbands might have. Steve Tracy, he's a professor at Phoenix Seminary, he did an extensive research, and he lists several instances where a woman shouldn't submit to her husband. She shouldn't submit if it would enable her husband's sin. So if he's being angry and abusive to you, to just submit to him is actually perpetuating that sin, and you shouldn't do that. She shouldn't submit if it violates a biblical teaching or principle. She shouldn't submit if it violates her conscience. She shouldn't submit if it would compromise her relationship with Christ. She shouldn't submit if it would compromise the care, nurture, and protection of her children. Furthermore, a wife must not submit, he writes, to physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. They must seek out help. And so when this verse is used as a weapon, as a lever, you know, in a marriage to say, the Bible says this, I think that's something to pay attention to. Why is this being used as a club? Paul's not using it as a club. And so if you're in a position right now, ladies in particular, where you need help, come and reach out to the pastor's. Too often what happens are marriages get unhealthy and they get worse and they get worse. And it's, it's kind of like any kind of sickness. Issues are put off for years and years and years. And by the time that you seek help, it's usually too late. The relational damage is done and the ability to rebuild trust, not, you know, notwithstanding the grace of God, makes that very, very difficult. So moving on with the sermon. Paul's telling the older women to step into the lives of the younger women and help them navigate life and marriage, model the way for them. And ladies, you need significant relationships with people besides your husbands. Amen? Some of you, someone's like, some of you are like, I can't say it. He's sitting right here. But you need significant relationships with other women besides your husband. And like one of the things that's amazing here at our church is our women's Bible study, which Nora Allison started and which a ton of women are involved in. It's just, it's an awesome place for women to develop deep biblical friendships and really intergenerational friendships. I encourage you to step in there. We have other ways as well. But ladies, you need other women in your life. Or maybe God is calling you to step into the lives of others. All right. A lot there for young women. And then you get to young men, and Paul says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, which I think is just hilarious. He's like, women, do this. Love your husbands. 
comes a young man, you know what, if you can just control yourselves, like, that's a good place for you to start. And once you get there, then, then we can start dealing with maybe, you know, you got to crawl before you can walk. Uh, I do think there's more to it. See, Titus is a young man, and Paul's calling Titus to be the example for the young men. Verse 7, he says, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good, and your teachings show integrity, seriousness. And I don't think that means you got to have a you know, stern face. I just think it means have gravity, have some weight to your teaching. Don't be flippant about it. Integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Paul's saying, Titus, you got a model for the younger men, a life of doing good, of walking in righteousness, of teaching and growing in the faith. I want you, Titus, to help lead the charge with the young men in the church that they can look to you and say, yeah, I want to become more like him. And lastly, we get to the slaves and masters. And before I read this to you, a couple of things need to be said. Slavery was just a part of life in the ancient world. It was just, it was just a part of life. Uh, it was different than slavery in our country's history. It wasn't race-based. Um, oftentimes, slaves were citizens of nations that had been conquered by Rome, and they would, you know, the people who were conquered would be brought into the household to work and live. As servants, sometimes they'd hold a really prominent position in the house. If they were educated, they would train the children, all sorts of things. Could also end up in slavery from debt or other things. But what Paul writes here, this is not Paul advocating or even endorsing slavery. We know Paul's attitude towards slavery. In the very next book in the Bible, Philemon, uh, that he is advocating for a slave to be set free. And so this isn't, this isn't a verse that people can go to, even though they try and say, see, the Bible justifies slavery. No, it was a way of life. And Paul wanted to see it changed, but he also recognized change is slow. And so what does it look like for a Christian slave? How should they interact with their masters? And there's some overlap here probably for how we relate with our employers or our bosses, but not entirely. It's a little different. But he says this. Teach the slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted. It says, work hard, be faithful, don't gossip or slander your master, don't steal from him. Just show up and be faithful to the task that's before you. Those are the five groups. And when you step back from this, there are parts of this passage that are challenging. There are phrases in this passage that are challenging. But I think the real challenge is when you get the vision as a whole, it's a very challenging countercultural vision that Paul is offering here. He's calling the older men to grow in wisdom, to put their youthfulness behind them, to continue to mature in their faith, to not just check out. He's calling the older women to not just check out or, you know, live the life they've always wanted to live, but to instead to invest their life in the younger women in the church. He's calling younger women and younger men to show up to serve husbands, wives. He's even calling the slaves to be faithful in the task that's before them. And this, it runs so counter to the spirit of our day, the spirit I see, the spirit I feel inside of me, where it's about you, it's about your rights, it's about what do you want, it's about 
you know, things revolving around you. And Paul's saying, no, the church, if the church is going to be a beautiful community, it's not about you. It's about growing into this vision. And there are three parts of this vision that I want to put before you as we wrap up. Three takeaways. A beautiful church, Paul says, it's a learning community. A beautiful church is a learning community. To live into this vision is not just going to happen automatically. It's something we have to learn. Eight times the word teach is used in this passage. And the reason why is because when you become a Christian, it's not as if all the knowledge and wisdom of how to live as a Christian gets directly deposited in your mind. I mean, God gives us a spirit and that's a grace, but the rest of our lives on this earth is us growing in knowledge and wisdom of how to walk and follow in faithfulness. And so some things aren't that hard. You pick up earlier, or maybe they're hard, but they're not that hard to understand. So you're called to love, you're called to forgive. Other parts of a life of faithfulness, though, require wisdom. What do you do in this situation? Do you go right? Do you go left? And what Paul is saying here is the the beautiful church is a church filled with teachers and learners. People who are showing up with a posture of humility and openness, eager to see what God might have for them or how they can grow. And this requires just, it requires so much humility to learn, especially when you think you've learned pretty much everything you need to learn. You know, one of the things I've noticed as a pastor, uh, both churches that I've pastored have been in church culture. Uh, it's easy for people to show up to church with kind of a, a know-it-allism, to have this assumption that whatever knowledge they currently have is 100% accurate and it's more than sufficient. And then when they show up to church, it's kind of this posture to see if there's any points of disagreement. And if there is, then it's obvious that the pastor or the worship leader or whoever else is automatically wrong. They think they've arrived. They're not able to show up and say, maybe I have something to learn as well. But what I love about this church is you all are hungry to learn. You guys are hungry to grow. We have our women's Bible study. We have which is amazing in our men's Bible study, which is getting there. Pastor Jonathan and I talk about it's growing into to what's going to be amazing. Someday we have discipleship school. And I just want you to know, if you want to grow here, there are plenty of opportunities to grow in knowledge. If you want to learn, there are plenty of opportunities for you to learn here. One of the fatal flaws of the Pharisees is that they thought they knew it all. And they didn't have the curiosity or humility to listen even when Jesus was teaching. And so I want to invite you to step into learning. And, and the learning that Paul's talking about and describing here, it's not what I'm doing right now, I don't think. I mean, I love what I get to do. But the, the teaching and learning that Paul's describing, it's happening in relationships. It's happening over coffee or over a meal. Or maybe a group of people gathered together, community group. It's interrelational. And so... Are you committed to growing and learning? And how are you doing that? Like it just doesn't happen automatically. If, if you're not in the word, if you're not in a Bible study, if you're not meeting with others, how are you actually growing in knowledge and wisdom and insight? Maybe you should reach out to someone and ask them to meet in a more intentional way. On the flip side, if you're an older man or woman, who could you be investing into if you're not? Who could you be spending time with and pouring into? 
So number one, a, a beautiful church is a learning community. Number two, a beautiful church is a serving community. The posture described here over and over and over again is a posture of service. It's showing up and saying, how can I help? Where can I help? Younger women are serving their husbands and their children. Younger men are serving their wives and their families. Even though it's not explicitly described in this text, that's certainly what Paul has in mind. Even slaves are stepping in to serve. And one of the marks of a beautiful community is the desire to serve and to invest in others. And I think for a lot of people, especially if you grew up in a church culture, there is a paradigm shift that's one of the most important shifts to flourishing in a church. A lot of people come to church and they say, how can I be served here? What's this church going to do for me? But the real turn that has to happen to really grow is when you show up and you say, how can I serve? What can I step into? Where are their needs? How am I gifted? And how can I utilize those gifts for the good of the church? You know, our culture will hear a lot of these things and kind of look, man, it seems like you're just giving your, your life away for other people. And you say, exactly, because Jesus taught us that's the path to life. The path to life is not preserving your life. It's giving it away. You know, it's fitting that this text came up when we announced VBS is coming back. Because one of my favorite, I love VBS, but one of my favorite things about VBS are the people who serve. And you probably have a profile in your mind of who's going to serve in VBS and probably looks a lot like the people who serve in Sojourn Kids. But what I love about VBS are people who don't serve in kids at all, but then they show up. Uh, if any of you know Richard Breen, he's been in our church for a long time. Uh, he's mid-60s, he's a lawyer. He, VBS week comes, he takes the entire week off. By about Thursday or Friday, he is dragging. You know, he's got coffee, IV, uh, trying to keep up with the kids. Bruce Phillips, another older man in our church, shows up and serves the whole week. And it's so beautiful to me watching them because my kids are there. And they get to interact with Mr. Richard. But I talk to him and he says, it's my favorite week of the year, stepping into this. I love this more than anything. So a beautiful church. It's a learning community. It's a serving community. And then lastly, I would say it's a maturing community. There's one common theme that belongs to pretty much every group. And that theme is Paul's call to be self-controlled. Same thing he asked of elders. And I find that interesting. Self-control. What's the, the one thing that Paul's, you know, the, the one drum he's going to beat again and again and again? It's self-control. Why? Well, well you need self-control if you're going to serve, if you're going to show up in these ways. Because just even the idea of self-control, it speaks to the reality that we all feel that we actually have competing urges and desires in us all the time. All the time. You'll get home from church today. Do you want to sit on the couch or do you want to deal with the laundry that you've been putting off? And you're going to have this, you know, internal battle raging inside of you. It's what Paul describes in Romans 7. I, I want to do things and I don't, and then I don't do things that, that I want to do. Like it's like, what's going on inside of me? That's where self-control, it's not just about trying harder or saying stop it. Self-control 
is recognizing that as a Christian, God has poured his spirit into our life and he is calling us to a vision that's beautiful and powerful and world-changing, but we still have the old man, the old woman left inside of us. The one that's a slave to sin, that's ruled by sin. And just saying, do better, try harder, stop it. It, it doesn't, you can't win the battle. That, and sometimes you can, and I'm not demeaning effort. It requires effort in this battle, but you need something more. And Paul tells us what that something more is in verse 11. He says, for, how do we do this? For, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. How do we grow into these kinds of people? Paul says it's about grace. It's the grace of God has appeared. And we know grace has a name, and that name is Jesus. And Jesus showed up in our world. And what Paul says here, I wish we could spend more time in it. What Paul says is when Jesus came, he didn't just die for our sins and then get whisked off somewhere, and now we just kind of live our life however, but when we die, we get to go to heaven. What, what Paul says is the grace of God has appeared. Jesus has appeared. He offers salvation to all kinds of people, slaves, old men, young women. And this grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace changes us. I find it helpful to think of the three tenses of grace. You have past grace. Jesus died for our sins. He took our punishment. But there's also present grace because our God is not dead and he's not asleep. He's actively at work right now in our lives and in our world. And this present grace is God refining us and growing us and deepening us, seeing us grow in holiness, sanctifying us. That's what Paul's describing right there. He's teaching us to learn to not live like we used to live, to control our appetites for food or for drink or for sex, to control our tongue, gossip or slander, or words spoken in anger. I think he's refining us too and recognizing our limitations. I think part of growing in self-control is knowing you have limits. And I see this a lot myself. I see it a lot in the church where people, they, they don't have self-control. They're not able to say no to things. And so they overcommit and they totally burn themselves out. And what Paul is saying is the grace of God right now in the present tense, he's refining us and deepening us and growing us. It's by his spirit that we grow in self-control. There's past and present grace, but Paul also points to a future grace. Verse 13. He says, right now we live, back to 12, we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Again, this is a lot of words coming from Paul, but what Paul is saying here is one of the ways that we're growing into this kind of community and these kinds of people, it's hope. It says, while we wait with hope for what God is going to do. See, in Jesus, 
we have some great and precious promises that our world will be freed from sin, that, that the new world that God is making will be nurtured by his generous, self-giving love and presence. And so for Paul, his mindset is, and I don't know if we think like this, when Paul talks to Christians in the early church, they're waiting for something to happen and not waiting passively like, uh, who knows when that's... There, the word used here for wait is the same word used to describe Simeon and Anna. It's, it's a word that describes someone who, who has a dogged confidence in God and his promises. And they're actually looking and saying, there is a day he's going to come back. There is a day he is going to right all that is wrong in this world. And when that day comes, I want to show up as a worker approved. On that day, I don't want to be ashamed of how I used my life. And I actually want my life now to conform to that life. And so this, this vision, when you stop and think about it, it's hard and it's challenging. But it's beautiful. It's a multi-generational community of love and service. And one of the things that I really love about our church is we've truly grown into a multi-generational community. When I got here just about 10 years ago, I think there was one couple over the age of 60. And now you look around, man, we've got a lot more older folks and a lot more younger folks. And that's a gift. The gift in that is that we can interact and learn from one another and pour our lives out in service of one another. And it's beautiful. And what Paul says here is when we live into this vision, he says it again and again. He says it paints a picture for the world. It makes the teaching, verse 10, about our God, our Savior, attractive. You know, when we live into this vision, even though Christianity is being pushed to the margins a bit more these days, living into this beautiful vision will lead people to say, I don't agree with them and I think they're weird, but I also think there's something very intriguing. And that's Paul's desire for the churches in Crete. That's my desire for us as God's people here. And so with that in mind, we're going to move to the Lord's table. And here at the table, we're reminded of the tenses of grace. We're reminded on the night of his betrayal, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And then he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so communion is a time where we remember that Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And that if you're in here feeling guilt about sin, you can repent of it and trust that Christ has taken your sin. This is also a time to remember that God sustains us right now while we wait on this earth for him to make all things new, and while we seek to grow. And it's also a reminder of the promise that when God does make all things new, we're going to sit down together with him at a feast. And this is a foretaste. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.